host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio on this Friday is my good buddy Harmon Dial. Harm, what's going on, man? Not much, just another uh, crazy week in Kanakland. Another crazy week in Kanakland. I think this is the the third show in the past week of PDO cast, maybe, that we're at least going to lead with Canucks talk, which I think for listeners maybe out of market here, they're like, why are you spending so much time talking about the 27th team in point percentage or whatever this season? Yeah. But you know what? When you see a, when you see a, a, a true train wreck just materializing before your very eyes in slow motion, I feel like it's okay to stop and you stop and stare. Away. And talk about it with your buddy. So that's what we're going to do here today. And and we're going to talk about the, especially like, we're going to, we're going to use the the Kuzmenko extension that came through uh, yesterday after I'd already recorded my show, so we didn't make any mention of it, um, as kind of our entry point into this conversation. Then we can talk about other sort of, especially focus from the business side on like the cap logistics and proceeding with contracts and stuff moving forward. So let's get into it. I, I think this is, it's a weirdly divisive uh, extension, just in the sense that both things, two things can be very true at the same time and they run totally counter to each other, right? One, Kuzmenko is a very fine player and is worth every penny of this extension. It's a good deal in in just purely based on what he's produced so far this year and what he should get on the open market. But also, it makes absolutely zero sense for this Canucks team based on where they're currently at and what the alternative was. Do you agree with that? 100%. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw the terms was going, okay, first five and a half million, the AAV was probably about 500K lower than what I thought the cap it would be. I thought the cap it might be around 6 million. And then the term was a year shorter than I thought it'd be. So there's even less downside risk on that. So immediately my thought was, okay, that's cheap. And then my second thought immediately was, man, there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity cost because ultimately it comes down to this. I'm just looking at the Canucks' window of yep. what they're trying to achieve and I'm going, your Kuzmenko's going to turn 27 in a week. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was, was a pending UFA. What are you going to win in the next two years as a team that can justify the value that you're going to get out of this bridge contract? Because that's really the point of signing a bridge, right? Yeah. Is you're hoping to extract short-term value out of this deal, but you may get great value out of him as a, a as a player and, and on that contract, but I just don't know as a team what you're going to really do in that time and, and how that lack of value rel, uh, relates and, and sort of contrasts what you could have gotten for him at the trade deadline. And I know a lot of people will point to, okay, lack of playoff experience, um, lack of NHL sample size, and for yeah. sure those would have been considerations for teams, but it's a unique proposition of this season. He's on his ELC 31 teams around the league can afford this guy in a market where I was just looking at cap friendly the the other day, only eight teams with 2 million or more in cap space. Not every team can go out and afford a Patrick Kane or or a Tarasenko or a Timo Meyer in terms of their massive cap hits. You look at Kuzmenko the season that he's having 43 points in 47 games, a player like that who you can add for essentially free to your roster that would have had significant trade value. And, and again, that is a sort of situation when you look at the, the Canucks who've drafted once in the first round the last three years and Scott Wheeler at The Athletic who does great work. Their prospect pool ranks 28th. The only teams below Vancouver were the Penguins, Bruins, Avs, and, and the Lightning. Yes. 
all teams that have won Stanley Cups since right. 2010 yeah. and are still actively contending year in, year out. Yeah. So you're just in such an asset deficit and you're so far away from being good that even though I, lo- I really love the player, even though he's been so exciting, even though he's such a great personality, this team needed the futures. Well, hearing you speak on that, I'm very curious for your take on why Kuzmenko personally, individually, chose to sign this contract. I understand that he's played, what, less than 50 NHL games yeah. so far in his career, and so the sample size is small, and there's something to be said for just like, all right, you're getting, whatever, 10-plus million for the next two years. That's that's not bad, and you're going to get back on the market when you're 29. At the same time, though, based on the offensive heater he's been on so far, it, it's, it's surprising. I guess he really just does love Vancouver like is it is it as simple as that I'm I'm very curious I know that um our colleague Thomas Drans had uh his agent Dan Milstein on on the program yesterday on Canucks talk and and they were they were talking about some of the logistics of that but I'm I'm very curious for like why what the impetus was for for him to sign especially at this point like I'm kind of curious on that yeah I think there are a couple factors number one is the comfortability where Vancouver just as a pure city is is beautiful right guy comes over from from Russia gets his pick of all these destinations and it's like, do I want to live in Edmonton, which was another finalist or Vancouver? You want to get that, I, I think, experience of living, living in a great city. So I think that uh, that's an advantage right off the bat. And when you're in that spot, you're just trying to learn English. You're trying to get accustomed to uh, the culture, uh, become become friends with your teammates. It's, you know, just after one year, it's it's a very difficult transition. I, I had a chance to, to talk to Vasily Podkols and, went through a very similar transition last year as a rookie, there's definitely a learning curve in becoming comfortable with, with your sure. teammates, uh, really being able to set your roots. And there are n- another couple Russians on, on the team. Pod Colson's obviously down in the A right now, but yep. he'll be back up soon. But even with uh, Mikheyev, who is also a Dan Milstein client, I know they've built a, a good rapport and relationship together. So I think there's that side of it. And then also signing to your bridge he's setting himself up to where if he's able to sustain a pretty high level of production, if the cap's going up in two years, he may look at that as, okay, I'm still going to be 29. That'll be a, a great opportunity to get um, uh, a big payday then. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's, it's uh, the reason I brought that up. It's rare that you see, um, like it's not rare that you see a bridge off of an ELC like this, but it is rare to see a bridge for a guy who's, got ufa status and is producing the way he is especially at this point of the season right so i was kind of curious Did about that Panarin have ufa status when he signed his bridge first one with uh, chicago that's a good question i don't have we don't have because i don't we don't, have, we don't have good exactly. wi-fi in the studio right now so i can't <laughs> even pull it off so we'll, we'll uh i'm not entirely sure but let's talk about kuzmenko so i mentioned fantastic player he's on pace for 37 goals 75 points He's producing nearly three five-on-five points per hour of play, which is fifth best in the league. He's been remarkably efficient and so fun to watch, right? Like on a team that has generally been such a a soul-crushing entertainment product in terms of tuning in to watch. Tell me how you really feel to me. It's 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 been a miserable experience turning on turning on the uh, on the TV or I guess I watch both these games on my laptop, but turning on uh, Sportsnet now and watching. The Canucks play. It's like, oh my god, this is just this is a very bleak situation to be tuning into. 
he's been remarkably fun stylistically, right? Watching him, I love watching him operate like along the boards where like a defender feels like he's going to like seal him or he's in a good position from a leverage perspective. And then he's just sort of like wiggles around and kind of, you know, gets them all out of, out of sorts just and eventually creates space for himself, right? It's like he's so, he's so slippery and elusive and we've seen him utilize that to his advantage. He's also struck up a really great chemistry with Elias Pettersson. We can talk about more of that here in a second where for a team that's like, bottom five in every single five on five metric as a team overall with the two of them out there they're like 57 percent expected goal share or something which is just remarkable right like they're overcoming their environment to a really impressive degree and so he's been fully worth bang for the buck he's been amazing and i get that like attachment as well where he's you see some of the snippets off the ice as well like he's so easy to to cheer for and root for and and market and build around and like be excited about. Right. So I, I totally understand all that. And I, I wanted to get into that a little bit because I get that there's like a, an emotional element to a, to a, a decision like this as yeah. well. Like it's, it's easy for us to kind of be like from the outside. All right. Like from a business decision, this is a mess. Like this is not how you should be, um, how you should be allocating your assets or your resources, but just purely from like, as a hockey player, he's been so good this season. Yeah. If you're a casual Canucks fan, you're jumping for joy. Yeah. In terms like, of, oh, I get to watch yeah, this guy yeah, for two exactly, more years. That's awesome. Right. Right now, watching Pedersen and Kuzmenko together is the, really the only reason to watch Canucks games, to be totally honest. It's like when that line's on the ice, they're exciting. You feel like they could generate a high danger chance or something magical on any given shift. And there's such a contrast to where when they're not on the ice at five on five and the quality of play for for the rest of the team. So absolutely. And it is interesting that you mentioned the edge work and the elusiveness. Yeah. That's a trait that he's really worked on. I remember when he first got into training camp, you could tell that he had the skating to execute, but he hadn't developed that puck protection ability quite yet where he would try some of those spins and it felt like a defender would be able to still poke poke at the puck, jar it free. It felt like he sort of moving low to high didn't have that ability to understand where to position his body to create those advantages, create those leverage points. And that's something that with confidence, he's really been able to add to his arsenal. And so when I watch him play, when I watch the Canucks play, he's their second most dynamic forward at, at even strength with what he's able to do with his hands in and around the net. He's one of the few players also that I know he's played a lot on the first unit power play in the net front position and he's been great there, but he's also the sort of player where we saw him at at moments on the second unit unit on the flank. He has a skill level to play on the flank and there aren't many and there aren't to, to be, be the sort of player that can have success there and have the offensive creativity to be a flank player um, in that set sequence when a defense is already set. And that requires a special set of skills. And uh, and it's just a, another example of where Kuzmenko's really shined. And to his credit also, yeah, he's not great defensively, but it hasn't been as big of an issue as I thought it might be, where his learning curve hasn't been nearly as as bad as, as I thought it, thought it might be. Right. I remember first training camp, it was like Pedersen and McCabe were going in on the forecheck. Normally, you, you'd have the, the third guy, F3, sort of hang back a little, try and stay above the opposition center, make sure that he's in the right position, especially if a defenseman, defenseman's pinching. Uh, D pinched, and it's like he didn't know, he had no idea that when, when there was a chip and chase that he was supposed to chase the puck right. down, and it, and it was a goal against, right? Yeah. And I thought, okay, there might be a bit of a learning curve there. But to his credit, 
obviously there's been the occasional moment, but he hasn't had these huge consistent puck management mistakes despite how much he's tried to make uh, make happen in the offensive zone. He hasn't had terrible back checks, hasn't been much of a liability along the wall. So he hasn't erased that offensive value either. Yeah. To put a bow on it, that's a really great point, but just to put a bow on what we were previously talking about, I was looking this up while you were speaking. So Panarin played the two years, and then he was an RFA, and he got two more years. And then he became the UFA. And then he, mm-hmm. in the meantime, he had been traded to Columbus. Yeah. And, then, and then he went on his big UFA ticket. So, yeah, it, this is a very unique situation in terms of stepping in, playing this amount of games, being this productive, and immediately having all the leverage that he did have, right? Um, no, that's that, that's a really good point and, and that you made there. And I think listeners are hearing us talk about this, right? And they're like, all right, so you're saying this guy is really fun. Like, he's like a ball of energy and joy that makes you happy every time he steps on the ice. He's... 26 turning 27 in a week you have him on a deal that's a bargain both in terms of actual dollars and not committing term just in case there is some risk with his sample size what's the problem well two things can be true at the same time as we said does this move make our team better today yes having andre kuzmenko on their team is smart does it make sense for this team based on where we're currently at no it does not and the numbers here are startling. So in the past seven months, right, this management group has committed $25 million to the following players. Andre Kuzmenko now, JT Miller, Brock Besser, Ilya Mikheyev. Those are all, and those are cap dollars for both next season and the year after for a number of those guys. You can bump it up to 30 if you want to include Connor Garland in there as well, right? Although they inherited him from the previous regime. But that's, that's stunning to me because it runs completely counter to all of the marketplace dynamics we're currently seeing in today's game, right? Like we're seeing, first it started with goaltenders where, where teams realize the volatility and, and variance in their performance. And so they're like, okay, we probably shouldn't commit big money and big time to them. Now with, with the flatter cap and with it slowly rising in a painstaking manner over many years, one of the, the casualties of that has been teams have realized like other than true star needle moving wingers that are foundational to our success everyone else in that position is kind of disposable like there's varying degrees of course but we don't really need to be paying a premium and investing real dollars into this position when if we have star centers or people who can make anyone around them better we may as well just kind of fill that fill those margins on the cheap right and instead the way this canucks team has chosen to to construct their roster so far has been investing significant dollars into that exact position, which is just mind-blowing when you consider what everyone else around the league is basically doing. And considering their, their, their other needs, now you're looking at a scenario where going into the summer, they have around $9 million in cap space projected right now. With that $9 million, you've got a, according to this idea of a retool, okay, where they yeah. want to supposedly turn things around sooner rather than later, They'll need to find a top six center to uh, replace Bo Horvat, which, good luck. That's like top, finding top pair defensemen. Uh, unless you're drafting and developing them yourselves, you're going to have to overpay drastically, either yep. on the free agent market or uh, via trade. Then you've also got to totally rebuild a defense, which has zero top 4D outside of Quinn Hughes. Yeah. That's not going to That's not gonna be enough, even after you count for could we trade a couple guys. And, and even then how much confidence can you have that management can create that flexibility when they had that exact same objective last summer right. and all they could do was free up Dickinson's contract by 
paying a second round pick for it and still taking on a $1.3 million ticket in Riley Stillman. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, I, well, that's, that's the thing, right? So in theory, it sounds good to be like, all right, well, we can buy out Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, right? And that creates like $8 million in additional cap space flexibility for, I believe, next season and the year after. And then you tack on future dollars, right? You could also buy out Connor Garland conceivably and save yourself like $4 million in cap savings next year. But the question for that is like, to what end in the sense that, yeah, you're creating this like immediate present day space, which is valuable, but for a team that we think has so much work to do to even become competitive in the slightest, you're taking on so much risk by then tacking on future commitments with these buyouts. Yeah. 2031 for OEL if you buy them out. In in years where if everything goes well over the next handful of years, those are going to be the meaningful years where you're like every dollar is going to matter, right? And so it's like you're just pushing the tab back and you're like you're just taking on like additional mortgages to and and I just don't understand what the purpose of that is because one thing we've seen with Jim Rutherford over the years, particularly during his time in in Pittsburgh, it's like cap space like burns a hole in his pocket, right? Like he's yeah. like he's like, "All right, some money opened up or all we made a we made a move to clear up some space. Let's immediately spend that today, no matter what, on like something we don't necessarily need. And so I just you can talk yourself into there's ways we can create cap space and the Canucks can get back into the market and be flexible to improve their team this summer. I just don't understand how seeing what's gone on, seeing the track record, how you could have any confidence to believe that like that money is gonna be put to good use by this organization. For sure. Also when we discuss the idea of the opportunity cost and you could have traded Kuzmenko, a lot of people will say, great, if you could have gotten a late first or a second in, uh, in another piece that, okay, that's a decent return, but th- that's all it is, right? But again, it's also the cap flexibility side where not only is, is there the possibility of, okay, you've got major needs at center and RD, which are a lot more difficult to fill, especially because... Also, from a prospect perspective, wing is also the Canucks' strongest position when you consider Hoaglander and Pod Colson coming up. Yep. Lakaramaki, their their only blue chip prospect, is also a winger. Yep. The other side of it too is how you can monetize the cap cap space, even from a futures perspective. And, and the Canadiens sort of provided a template for that last year when they traded to Foley to the Flames, mm-hmm. got a first round pick for them, and then used the cap space that that trade freed up to then in the summer get another first round pick from Calgary for taking on Sean Monaghan's contract, which had one year at $6 million. Yep. Now, because Monaghan's played well, yeah. they'll probably be able to sell him for another asset or two at the deadline. Yep. So you're looking at two first round picks and whatever Monaghan gets you at the deadline just from that one move of, of trading to Foley, right? So it's not just what you immediately get in a trade. It's you're... However, you then want to allocate those cap dollars to to build your future asset base, or even even if you're in this retool mode, the team needs that money to rebuild the back end, right? That's that's where you look at an opportunity like John Marino becomes available, yes. right? Shot deep, young, cost controllable. The Canucks didn't have the cap space to bid realistically on a player like that. Those are the opportunities where if you're so insistent on we've got to contend now, you have to be able to jump all over them. Yeah. Well, so so what are okay? So what are the? Let's go through and try to debunk all the common pushbacks that I that I'm sure you've gotten already from the market in terms of why this was actually the right move for the Canucks. So one of them, I presume, was 
what you just mentioned where, well, maybe the Canucks just couldn't have gotten as much as you think they could have gotten for Guzmanko, which I think is patently false because I don't think they ever truly entertained the idea. No, they they didn't. They did not explore it, right? Like, I think they had blinders on in terms of, like, they were like, we worked really hard to recruit this guy and to bring him to Vancouver. We like what we have in him. Let's keep him. I think that's, like, the calculus was that. I don't think the flow chart extended beyond that. Yeah. I don't think other opportunities were explored. I don't know. I might be wrong. Well, even just... when he was initially signed, it was under the premise of exploring it as a long-term fit. So this was never did they ever really seriously consider moving on from him. Well, true. But I think they also thought that they were going to be better than yeah. they were heading. I mean, they should have explored it. But <laughs> yes. the point is, yeah, they didn't really test okay, the market. So that's one of them. And I, I just, if they had tested it, I think they would have found that they could have gotten quite a bit because the past trade headlines, if you look at a lot of the moves that happened, any forward that could have been gotten for uh, a below market price in terms of cap dollars yeah. went for significantly higher acquisition costs than their actual performance yeah. would have led you to believe they'd get, right? Like... You can go two ba- two years ago, what the Leafs paid to get Nick Foligno. Now that a move like that involved getting like a third party to facilitate um, cap retention, yeah, which is a consideration that does like all of that. Yeah. All of that capital could have just gone to the Canucks because they don't need a third yeah. party to facilitate another fifty percent retention, right? Mm-hmm. Ricard Raquel last year like got like a good goalie prospect, Zach Asinarese, which whatever they wound up letting him go, and a second round pick, I believe, for Ricard Raquel, right at thirty five percent retained. Obviously, Brandon Hagel is a bit different because he had two more cheap years on his contract, and that's why the Lightning paid a premium. But they gave up two first-round picks for him, yeah. right? Like, and an inferior player to what Andrea Kuzmenko has shown at the NHL level. So, I just re- re- reject the notion that all, the best they could have gotten was like a second and a and a B-level prospect, or even like just one late first. Like, I think they could have gotten multiple assets because for less than one million dollar cap hit for a player that's been as productive as he is. I think the lineup would have been around the corner for him. Like, I think, like, you could have, a smart organization could have legitimately, like, started a bidding war and then just gotten teams to keep upping their offers, starting it now and waiting until the trade deadline to do so. Like, imagine how big the acquisition cost could have gotten in these, whatever, six weeks to come. Definitely. The other side of it, too, is I've been hearing a lot of this theory that, okay, if this doesn't work out, if the Canucks aren't able to turn the ship around, that between now and the expiry of his contract, at any point you could then monetize him for the same value, which no. I, you can't, no. right? Because now you're looking at a scenario where all of a sudden he's five times more expensive, more than that even. he, You've automatically shrunk your trade market by almost 40% because of the 12-team no-trade list. And the multiple tr- years of term left, right? The, the couple examples that came to mind for me were... You look at teams like New York, the Rangers, mm-hmm. and um, and the Wild. Right. Those are teams, for example, that need could use another scoring boost, right? Wild because they haven't been able to really replace Kevin Fiala. Rangers because I've seen Jimmy Vesey on the top line on the yeah. right wing. Those are examples of teams that could really use a scoring boost as rental, but none of them have the flexibility to add salary beyond the season. Yep. So... Like, that's just an example of how teams are viewing the idea that, okay, just because Kuzmenko is on a reasonable contract doesn't mean that his value is the same because 
teams like the the flexibility of not having to commit the term. Yeah. So that's, I think, really important to mention. Yeah, I mean, he truly was like a unicorn entering this trade deadline. Like, I, I think there was a case to be made. Like, everyone is a superior player, clearly, in, in Timo Meyer, Everyone is, like, salivating over him and, and talking about, like, which, which of the contenders are going to pay the premium to get him and, and everything, right? And I get that. He's going to be worth it. But Kuzmenko at this price tag, like, to me, was the most interesting potential available player at this deadline because any team could add him and he would instantly mesh with every team, right? Like, every team can use an Andre Kuzmenko and every team can fit him into their roster. So the price just would have been through the roof. And so you're right. Within the next two years, you you probably can move him. It's not going to be nearly for what it would have been now because much of the appeal was that sub $1 million cap it. So I think that's a, that's a good the point. The other theory I want to debunk okay. is I've seen a lot of this idea that Kuzmenko's extension now appeases Pedersen oh my God. and helps convince right. him re-signing. Yeah. I, I'm, I like the way, the easiest way to sort of debunk that is simply by framing it as Pedersen's next contract if he re- if he decides to resign in Vancouver, presumably to maximize his value, uh, mm-hmm. maximize his earnings, mm-hmm. is going to be for eight years, yeah, nearly a decade. There's only one year of overlap between Kuzmenko's extension and Pedersen's next contract. Yeah, so you're telling me Elias Pedersen is going to be sitting there making his decision in the off season about whether he wants to extend extend in Vancouver or not, and he's going to be going. Man, I've got this eight-year commitment, but year one, I get to play with Andre Kuzmenko, a guy I've known, yeah. who I met four months ago. That's the decisive factor. Yes, I'm staying forever in Vancouver. I'm spending my entire prime. I know. That's not going to be the deciding factor. And that's not to say that Pedersen's going to want to leave necessarily, because no. I know he really likes it in Vancouver. I'm not trying to say yes or no. I'm just saying the idea that a player who's only only guaranteed to be here for two more years, that's not going to sway a star player's opinion on whether to commit his entire prime to Vancouver as a franchise or not. Yeah. Okay, I've got a lot of lot of follow-up thoughts on this. Let's quickly take our break here, and then when we come back, we'll keep chatting about Kuzmenko and the Canucks and Pedersen and all that good stuff. You're listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Here with Harmon Dial on the Hockey Video Cast. Yeah, the 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 we did this to keep Pedersen idea is is silly to me because you know what I think would commit Elias, convince Elias Pedersen to commit the rest of his best NHL seasons to this organization, showing that you're able to have a long term plan in place that is going to allow him to compete, meaning in and play meaningful games, right? Like I, I think. It's just so wild to me to be like, all right, well, he's he's had success with this winger that he's played with, so we're going to keep him, and that's going to turn his decision into a no-brainer for him. Like, it's, I really don't think that moves the needle at all. Like, I'm sure he's enjoyed playing with him and all that, but it's silly to me. And, and 
you know, like let's go through the stats of them together. So they've played 415 five on five minutes together, right? I mentioned they had like a 57% expected goal share, 59 actual goal share. They scored 34 goals in that time at five on five, right? Kuzmenko's played 175 minutes without Elias Pettersson. He scored, and the Canucks have scored six goals in those minutes. So I, I, when part, another thing that I wanted to debunk here was he's shooting 25, Kuzmenko's shooting 25%, right? And I've seen people say, well, that's not that much of an aberration because he's a skilled player. And also, if you look at a lot of the goals he scored, it's like tap-ins around the net where it's a pretty high percentage shot, right? Very true. If that's the case, though, why are you why are you paying for that, right? Like, I think we all agree that the needle mover, the creator here is Elias Pettersson in this equation, right? So the whole point of having Elias Pettersson on your team is he's going to create those opportunities for anyone around him. So it's, I just don't understand the logic of paying Elias Pettersson's winger to keep Elias Pettersson happy when he's doing his thing. He's great. He would be an MVP candidate if this team was better. It doesn't, that's not the way to run your business. You know what I mean? Like you should be using that money elsewhere so that you can make Elias Pettersson's life easier when he's not on the ice. Yeah, very fair. (laughs) I would say that this season it's been tough, even last year, for Pettersson to really find a winger that he's had that same level of chemistry with just because we've seen Besser take a step back I don't think that him and Garland have particularly been a great fit when they played last yeah played together last season I so from that perspective you know I I do think there's something different there that Kuzmenko adds in the sense that I haven't seen other wingers on this roster be able to find the open ice around the blue paint well, he's got, he's got a level of creativity to his game, yeah. right? He can think the game along with yeah. Patterson, which I think is a is a is a distinction from some of the other players you yeah. mentioned who have their own skills but just don't possess that yeah. like next level way of seeing the ice. Yeah, but I agree overall that him him extending extending Patterson's winger isn't going to all of a sudden a winger again that he's spent half a season with isn't going to make him all of a sudden. No, but just from a, like a team building perspective, yeah. like the Canucks. When Elias Pettersson is on the ice, regardless of who's out there with him, and, and I acknowledge what yeah. you're saying in terms of like the the chemistry between them has been mutually beneficial to a degree, I think Pettersson's reached that level where mm-hmm. you could put me, you, producer Dom, and someone else from the 650 studio <laughs> here out there with him, and I think we'll, we'll come out as a net positive. Like, he's been so good. Yeah. And so I just, I think the smart play would be give guys like Garland and Besser a longer runaway with Pedersen the rest of the season because your your goal should be to rebuild the value of those guys so that you can potentially move them this summer. Because I think there's this also this idea of like, well, you can just trade those players. And you can, but a, to facilitate a trade like that even this offseason, you're either going to have to include capital to get someone to take their contracts or take bad money on elsewhere to facilitate it. And I don't think this organization is in a position to do either of those things. So, like I was asking, I was asking Thomas Drance this yesterday when I went on his show, Canucks Talk. If the Canucks put either Garland or Besser on waivers today, do you think they'd be claimed by anyone? I don't think they'd be no, claimed. They would not. I, I I would be stunned. Like it's just too much, too much money, too yeah. much term for both, right? Like I if they were I'll say this again, and this is where the distinction is about the the term, if a player like Besser was expiring at the end of the season, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of teams interested. Of course. 
Same thing with Garland. Yeah. But it's the term. That's the yeah. that's the sticking point more so than the cap hit. It is. Well, although the cap the cap hit is still an obstacle. The cap hit for Besser is an obstacle because it's like what is it six 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 point six six yeah. exactly. And with with Garland, it's a bit less. It's under five, but he's got that extra year, I believe. Right, like so. Yeah. It's really tough to to talk yourself if you're a contender into either of those as like taking those on. You just can't fit it, mm-hmm. and so it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to do it. So that's why I. I like the goal should really be to bump up the value for those guys as much as you can, so you could conceivably not hurt yourself elsewhere by clearing up that money. Because the plan, I, I think, yeah. is to try to get that get those cap hits off the roster somehow. Yeah, but it just makes no sense to be giving away draft picks to like what they did with the Jason Dickinson contract yeah. to facilitate that. Like they're not in a position to do that. They can't do that anymore. No, they can't. So I don't. I don't understand how, like what the plan is. Like part of the calculus has been like, all right, well, if we get rid of. Connor Garland's 4.95 here. It's like, okay, well, how are you doing that? They also tried really hard in the offseason. Yeah, no one's taking them. Like, no one's taking, no one, no one is taking winger dollars, right? Like, it's as soon as you get over like $2 million with any years of term on it, that player is passing through waivers. Like, it, it's, it's sad that yeah. the, the, the wingers are being treated that way, but it's the unfortunate reality of the way the NHL is operating right now. As the cap goes up in four or five years, it might change. But probably won't. I think everyone is realizing that we should just spend all of our money on centers and defensemen and then figure everything else out after. So, yeah. And the Canucks are spending all their money on wingers. Which, (laughs) one of the other interesting things is going to be the impetus to move those contracts out is going to be even higher if Miller doesn't stick at center under Talkit, which... Well, he's not a center. He's not. I agree with you. But they're going to try and make it work, especially if they trade Bo. Yeah. The like, it's just the the difficulty of being able to replace a guy like Horvat is so high that they almost have no choice but to try it, see mm-hmm. if it works under Talkit, a new system, a new environment, a new personality, a new level of accountability. See if you can even get to the point where he was last season, not in the sense of like ninety nine points, but just in in the sense of competent competency at center, not yeah. killing you right. as a top six center. I think they're going to have to give that a shot, which if that bet doesn't work and he is truly a winger, that's how you're going to have to plan for him for next year's roster. Or he's going to be as poor at center moving forward as he has been this season. Then you're really hooped if you're the Canucks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else on Kuzmenko or do you want to to pivot to, to Horvat a little? We can pivot to Horvat. Okay. Yeah, I think we, I think we, I think we did our due diligence there on Kuzmenko. Okay, Horvat. So I know you actually recently wrote about um, kind of like the most interesting landing spots for him, or or teams that would make sense in acquiring him, and then what the Canucks could get back in return for him. I think like it's 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 pretty clear that this is this was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, right. There's it's been a series of events that have led to this point, but it's like now it's it's truly they've backed themselves into like Bull Horvat is going to be traded and. Ironically enough, like that's probably going to be one of the first good long-term decisions they've actually made. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons, of course. Yeah. Um, but whatever, you know, the the results count. So let's get into it. What? Give me some interesting locations in terms of destinations for him and what we're looking at in return. Because during Jim Rutherford's presser, I guess like last week at this point, um there was this conversation of like what they'd be looking to get back in return and this idea that they'd be prioritizing young roster players over pure futures. So I'm kind of curious for your perspective on this. Yeah, it's been really interesting because 
I've also tried to weigh, and in trying to be objective, think from the other teams' perspective, what's realistic, what's not. The ideal situation would obviously be one where you can move Horvat to a destination where he'd probably want to resign. That team needs center help long-term. And in that case, it would benefit the Canucks because if a team feels confident that they can bring Horvat in, then he's not just a rental. He's a long-term sort of solution, kind of like what uh, Boston did with Hampus Lindholm type thing, right? Finding those fits hasn't been... It's been more challenging than I thought, right? Because right off the bat, I was thinking, Boston, perfect, right? They need... it It would give them a huge boost this season. And then on top of that, it's your succession plan for uh, when Bergeron and Krejci can't play any longer and then I'm looking at their cap situation obviously still having to pay Pasternak and I'm like I don't know how to make this fit in terms of actually extending Horvat and if he's a pure rental then obviously you're going to give up give up a lot less yeah which in Boston's case then you look at okay how would you formulate uh, a package they have a weak prospect pipeline and their best prospect is Fabian Lysol who's a winger yeah and I'm like Wow. Okay, that's a lot more, a lot more difficult logistically than you might think on the surface. And it was like that for quite a few sort of teams that I tried to that that I tried to go uh, go through. Even a team like uh, Colorado, which everyone for so long had had suspected, Horvati Avs, perfect successor for Kadri, but it's the same sort of thing where it's like they can't afford to keep him long term realistically. So from the Canucks' perspective, if you're dealing with Colorado, you're going, I need new hook in a package, right? Young center who, who checks that box. He can help us. Uh, long-term upside, maybe he can become a second-line center long-term. But if I'm Colorado and I'm thinking from that perspective, I'm going, I'd much rather pay a cheaper price for Monaghan than give up new hook, who's cost-controllable, who's cheap. And so, so now it's like, I wonder about Detroit. I don't think they should do it. Yeah. But they seem to consistently be sort of coming up in these discussions. And I just did a piece today with uh, with Max Baltman with with the Athletic and I do I I do wonder if they look at Horvat, especially the the sort of player who can form a one-two punch with Larkin if you're able to extend him obviously. And whether that's a team that Makes sense again. I wouldn't do it if I was in Detroit's shoes because I just don't think they're at the point in their contention cycle where they should pay the assets and the extension necessary for Horvat, whose value is at an all-time high. Yeah. But that seems to be a team that a lot of insiders can continually seem to to sort of, sort of bring up, and they have a deep prospect pipeline. I know if they if the Canucks are having those conversations, they're going to be asking for Marco Casper. But again, I, I mean, I wouldn't do that if I was Detroit. I the Detroit one makes no sense to me. Like I understand from the perspective of Horvat's a good player, and like everyone, like yeah. that's going to be the recurring thing where like every one of these teams, it's like, yeah, Bo Horvat's going to make them better for Detroit though, because it, clearly if they're making that deal, it's coming with a long term extension, right? Like it's not, yeah, it's, it would not be a rental. They have Andrew Kopp at five point six two five for many years down the road. He is turning twenty nine. Dylan Larkin, regardless of what the current chatter is about. What's going on with his extension? Like, they're I think they're going to keep Dylan yeah. Larkin. He's going to be 27, and he'll come in at what? Between 8 and 9 million, most yeah. realistically, which is what Horvat probably comes in. Like, I, I like what, what are we thinking for a Horvat extension here, right? Like, it, it's considering the production. Starts at 8. I think it's got to be in the 8s, right? Yeah, it's, it's probably in the 8s. Okay, so you're paying like 
25 to 27 million yeah, for three centers who are in their late 20s for a team that is not going to make the playoffs this season. I just find that incredibly strange. I think much more realistically, Steve Eiserman is trying to put pressure on Dylan Larkin to sign his extension and being like, oh, look, we could go and get Bo mm, Horvat yeah. and then use that money. And oh, and then all of a sudden, if uh, you know, he eats too much, too much of the pie, there's none left for you. Sorry, Dylan. Like, yeah. you better get this while you can. Yeah. And like, I, I think that that's sort of like that chess that he's trying to play is yeah. much more likely than a realistic plan here. Now, I think a lot of organizations are looking at what's happening with the Canucks right now and sort of being like, can we take advantage of them? Yeah. And so a lot of smart GMs will probably be checking in with the Canucks over Boar Horvat. And so that might get leaked mm-hmm. because everything involved yeah. in the Canucks get leaked these days. I could see that kind of trickling out and a lot of teams all of a sudden being linked to Boar Horvat. I'm just skeptical that, yeah. that it's a really kind of like actual thing that's happening. Yeah. I would say I agree. With, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I mean, logically, they shouldn't. Yeah. Unless they, unless other- they can get him for like, a bargain, which I yeah. guess we might be overselling what teams, what the Canucks will get for him, but I, I doubt it. Like I think, yeah. they have quite a bit of leverage here in terms of a good player not making much in terms of cap hit. But this it's also year. just like the contract. Even if you get him, like what's even if you get him for cheap, you're not making the playoffs this year, so it's no point as rental. And the contract, you know, regardless of whether the acquisition cost is cheap or not, you're going to be backing up the Brinks truck. The the Boston trade that you mentioned would has high potential for being incredibly unfortunate for the Canucks. Oh, yeah. Because I think a trade like that might involve, like, a Brennan Carlo yeah. or a Trent Frederick as, like, a centerpiece. Yeah. And and so, and that gets to get into the conversation of what you're prioritizing, right? I've seen, like, our, our pal Drans has been saying recently that there's pressure to... This market desperately needs a W, right? So the fans are are just itching for something to hold on to for hope. So you need to nail this trade and you and you need to you need to provide them with something to get excited about, right? And I just completely disagree that that is a factor at all because I think you could divide any fan base, but particularly this one in Vancouver, into two camps, right? There's fans who are really fed up and want meaningful change within the organization in terms of the way they operate and to take a bigger picture of you and finally do things the correct way from a business perspective. And then you have fans who are diehards of the team who will support them no matter what. You don't, making a trade like this, I I just don't think you need to cater to the latter because they're going to support the team no matter what. Like, but also I, that that segment, the latter one, who will support the team no matter what, who isn't, who aren't right now actively pushing for the organization to take a long-term view that's like five to ten percent of the fan base right now. I've never seen it this extreme in Vancouver, where such a high percentage of the fan base is begging for long term direction. I've never seen it that unified. Yeah. So, absolutely. I mean, I really hope from Canucks fans' perspective that they don't get out, go out, and um, prioritize a trade where a player like Frederick or, or Carlo is, is a sort of centerpiece in terms of an, in terms of another couple of teams I wanted to throw at you. Yeah. Carolina, of course, mm-hmm. but although I suspect that would be more as just a pure rental. Yeah. They have Scott Morrow as an interesting RD prospect. Yeah. Probably second pair upside there. 
So that, from the Canucks' perspective, could be an intriguing piece as, as a sort of like, hey, this, this guy could be an interesting one in the package. I know, again, the Canucks probably asked for Natchez or Jarvis. No, they're not, not getting get that, guys, no. But, right? I, but the, I, the, the Hurricanes are drafted so well that, like, with guys even, like, like a Drury or a yeah. Gunner, like they have like like Pistola, they have so many some, prospects that would like instantly there. become like the third best prospect in the Canucks pipeline. So yeah, one team that hasn't been really come up that often, which I'm curious to get your take on, is Winnipeg. Mm. Because oh, I thought about them at all. Number one, the West is so wide open this year, right? Where Colorado, because of injuries, but also all the uncertainty around even the health around Landis Cog, they don't look the same. Calgary hasn't been the contender we thought. Edmonton hasn't been the contender we thought. Vegas started really hot, but they've cooled off. And we'll have to see what happens with Mark Stone. And even when he does get back, is he still going to be able to play at that elite level again? So I'm looking at the West right now. It's wide open for the taking. You look at a team like Winnipeg, they're second in the West right now. I don't think anybody looks at them as a top cup contender right now. But adding a piece like Horvat right now would immediately, and I know their bigger need is on the back end. Mm-hmm. So you'd probably think about, all right, maybe you make like their higher party, maybe for a piece like a Chikrin. Mm-hmm. But let, uh, another option is someone like Horvat who would give you a significant boost there short term, but also it gives you more importantly, I think, more intriguingly, a long term succession plan for Pierre Luc Dubois. Yep. Who's obviously said that he wants to test free agency in 2024. Right. This summer, you're facing a situation as the Winnipeg Jets where he can take you either to arbitration or uh, just take his one-year qualifying offer and set that path in motion to become a free agent and leave. So if you, as the Jets, are confident that you can acquire Horvat and extend him, then all of a sudden you can, in the offseason, if you're, if Dubois is still insistent that I'm not going to resign here, yep. you can then deal him for a haul and continue contending knowing that you have Shifley and Horvat down the middle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that. That, that one makes a lot of sense. I, I really hadn't considered them. I think I think they need to get faster. Yeah. I, I watched them play the Sabres yesterday, and um, yeah, they looked a bit slow to me. But they've, they've had a really good year, and they have a lot of good players, and it makes sense for them to – it's not even really pushing all their chips in for the season because, as you said, like it provides you with – like. An insurance yeah. moving forward as well at a premium position, so I don't mind that one at all. Like that—that's—that's that's really interesting. That's much more interesting than a, than like Detroit yeah. for me for sure. Um, do you mention Minnesota, right? I I I mentioned Minnesota. That would be a rental though, right? Like they have. I was looking at it after the Boldy extension. They have about fifty-six. Oh, they mi- can't afford them long term. They have There's fifty-six no million for next year in Kaprizov, Zuccarello, Boldy, Erickson, X, Spurgeon, and Brodine. Yeah, that leaves them like twenty. Six million to fill out literally the rest of their team, and and also not like that would mean like trading Felino and Greenway, which I don't think they'll do. Greenway, they could. Probably, they could, but like, yeah. there's like that. That's that's literally six players that yeah. I mentioned, right? Like, I I just I don't. But it's such a shame because obviously they have the assets in terms of very intriguing prospects to make yeah. that trade happen, and the need is so desperate because not only do they need scoring, they need help down the middle, and he would look perfect for yeah. them. And and so that's a shame that they just like... They're they pure rental mode if they're acquiring anybody. The Devils have gotten a lot of steam recently. And that's I'm curious about for that. Me. I think I, can... I think with them and the Leafs, like I think whoever misses out on Timo Meyer might pivot because he might legitimately be like the second best player available 
mm-hmm. from from that group. But that one's strange to me as well as a long term fit because like they have Hughes and Hishier. So like yeah. Even Mercer can play in the middle if you need him to. Yeah, just allo- like from an asset allocation perspective, it doesn't make sense to be paying a premium long term for Horvat. Yeah, if I were them, unless they were going to bump him. Like I like Henrique for them because he's cheaper mm-hmm. and less of a commitment, and like obviously a lesser player, but high end finisher who can play on Hughes's wing and is really good at faceoffs, right? I and like so that. he helps cover for him and insulate him in things he's bad at without a. A premium Horvat's like a souped-up version of that at this point. Yeah, long. But if you're if you're trading for Horvat, if you're the Devils, you're probably not viewing him as Hughes's winger, yeah. right? Which is well, like the Leafs are an interesting fit for me because they could bump Jay Tav- John Tavares to Horvat's wing, for example, and yeah. then kind of do two birds with one stone there. There, but I don't think they'd acquire Horvat and be like, all right, he's going to be our second line, yeah, winger. So I don't know. There's. It's it's there. It's unfortunate because there's a lot of teams interested, but they're not the ones that either have the assets for him. And then the teams that do have the assets can't really justify trading them because he doesn't help them that much. It's been interesting to hear a lot of teams, and this is where Horvat's intangibles, the idea of him as a captain, he's revered around the league. Yeah. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of scenarios where you have teams that look set down the middle that logically shouldn't be paying a premium for him or considering it Mm -hmm. that are still kind of kicking the tires. Like even Edmonton's been thrown, thrown around. And I talked to my uh, colleague, uh, Daniel Nugent Bowman, where it's like the Oilers, God damn it. Go and get Jacob Chickard. Yeah. Like don't, like don't get another forward. But uh, I was talking to to Daniel and he's like, they may look at if, if they feel decently confident that Broberg or DeHarnay can hold their own on the back end, that they might use their, that they might look at a more cost-effective upgrade on the blue line and then prioritize adding a big ticket forward who would allow them to solidify either the second or third line so that McDavid and Drysaddle can play together all the Mm. time. Which again, I'm like, I I would not do that if I was in Edmonton shoes, but you're seeing a team like that come up. You're seeing Seattle is so odd for me. Right. Because I'm like, there's, there. Theoretically, so deep down the middle, not only right now, but with Shane Wright eventually coming. Yeah, but I think for them, just adding a good player might make sense. Like if you're Seattle, Uh, it's not necessarily like a need, but like, yeah, let's just add a good player. Let's build off what we're doing. But again, same thing. Like, wouldn't you want another stud defenseman? Yeah. If you're going to pay the premium? Of course. I just think it would be. It would be it would be a fun story from a geographical perspective. Oh, as it well. would be I'd, fun. I'd be, I'd be curious about that. Well, that's the other side. It's like I've wondered also when Seattle's come up, would Francesco Aquilini, would ownership even be okay with the idea that they're face of the franchise captain playing in Seattle? Oh, so good. All right, Harmon, this was a blast. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, people should go check out your work. We're certainly going to have you back on here in a couple of weeks. Uh, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO Cast. We'll be back on Monday with more here on the.